Well, good morning. Good to be back with you this morning. Uh, glad to see those of you who are in the house and those of you who are watching online. Welcome to you uh, as well. It's a privilege for me to be back with my Gateway family. And uh, although I'm sorry for the circumstances that allow this to be possible, um, we certainly want to be in prayer for KP and his family as they recover from COVID-19. And I've been praying for them, and I know that you have as well. And I was struggling this week early when KP called and asked me to speak. I struggled a little bit over what I was going to uh, to speak on, and through prayer I settled on Colossians 2. So if you have your Bible, you might want to turn there, Colossians 2. We're going to go through the whole chapter. Remember, I haven't preached in a year, so... Um, you, you, should, uh, you should be, you know, out by the time Super Bowl comes tonight. Um, for those of you who are listening online, I will tell you this. The, uh, after I decided to, on prayer to, uh, to, to, on Colossians 2, I listened to Steve Tucker last week, and uh, he confirmed in my heart that that's what I was uh, to speak on. So we're going to jump straight into it. This was Paul's message to the church at Colossae, and it's my message to the church at Gateway. He starts this way in verse 1, I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all of those who have not met me personally. Now, I want you to know that uh, Myra and I haven't forgotten you. Myra, it's sad she couldn't be here today. I encouraged her not to come um, because we've been trying to be very, very careful. And with her lung issues, it was important that we, we watch all of that and stay involved. But we've uh, stayed involved, we've kept up with you, we've prayed for you, I'm in constant contact with KP, I talk with him nearly once a week, um, and we pray together and we pray for you. He brings me prayer requests for the Gateway family and we pray together for you. And uh, if I'm not talking to KP, I'm talking to William, so we've uh, stayed involved. And um, But I want you to know something, I, I love retirement. I really do. I never thought I would say that, but it's been, it's been wonderful, and I, I'm so thankful that God brought KP to Gateway when he did, because I'm enjoying retirement because I know that Gateway's in good hands, and that you're in good hands. But don't think for a moment that I've forgotten you. We have struggled with you. We have struggled for you this past year. And so, uh, like Paul, I've even struggled for a whole lot of people that I've not even met. I've, I see your names come up every week, and I do watch every week uh, the Gateway Message, and I see your names come up, and so I'm struggling and praying for those of you who will watch that I haven't met either. So this morning, Paul says this, My purpose is that you may be in, encouraged in heart and united in love, so that you may have the full riches and complete understanding in order that you may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, knowledge is what we know. Knowledge is knowing something, and wisdom is knowing what to do with that information. And it's important that we have both. So, let's get personal. I've seen what some of you have posted on Facebook. And frankly, it concerns me. Not that you don't have the right to make your views known on one side or the other. But sometimes by doing what you do and what posting what you post, um, your right indicates stuff that you may not be realizing that you're indicating. And so like Paul, I want you to be united in love, not divided over politics. Be united in love, not divided over politics. And I know it's hard. Because I have strong feelings uh, about our current situation, our nation as well. But don't misunderstand that. My strong feelings are not because of our politics in this nation. My strong feelings are because of the spiritual nature of this nation. 
So I'm talking not politically, but spiritually here. Now, you know, some people get all upset when they read the Old Testament because God seems so angry in the Old Testament, doesn't he? I mean, I have a lot of people talk about that. God seems so angry in the Old Testament. And the reason for that is in the Old Testament, we see God's active displeasure with a nation that He is trying to create to represent Him who are in constant rebellion against Him. And so what we have is we have in the Old Testament God's direct and decisive judgment over His unique people. Now, we don't see that in the New Testament um, because of this. Some people get concerned and confused over, can this be the same God? I hear a lot of people say it's the different gods, and they're not. It's the same God. But in the New Testament, God pretty much endures his own judgment. He has taken his judgment for us in the person of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. And so in the Old Testament, God's people had to endure their judge, his judgment pretty much on their own. But in the New Testament, we have a mediator, and because of the cross, what we have today is not God's direct and decisive judgment on us. We have God's permissive judgment on us. Now, if you want to know what God's permissive judgment looks like, just look at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, and you'll see what we're talking about. God says basically in these passages, in in this passage, okay, you want me to leave you alone? You want to do it your way? You got it. But here are the consequences. And see, our problem is, is we want to do it our way without the consequences, and that's not going to happen. So we're under God's permissive judgment in this period of time. And if you take a look at Romans 1, it's all there. Everything that we're seeing in our nation is there. And if that doesn't convince you, just go over to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and you'll see it as well. Some of you as Christians have been so focused on the physical realities, what you see politically. You have been so focused on the physical realities that you have failed to see the spiritual realities and you have been fighting the wrong battle. You've been fighting the wrong battle. Paul goes on and says this, I tell you this so that no one will deceive you. By fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith is in Christ. In, In other words, what Paul's saying is, I'm calling you to attention. I'm calling you back to attention. In another place, Paul reminds us the weapons we fight with are not weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Now, here's the thing. If you fight with the world's weapons, you're going to get the world's results. But if you fight with God's weapons, your results are going to be out of this world. Be careful not to be deceived by fine-sounding arguments, either politically or spiritually. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as the Lord, continue to live in Him. Now, this sets the stage for everything else that goes on in this passage. For the true believer in Christ, there should be no gap between belief and behavior. None. There should be no gap between what you believe 
and how you behave. And there's no excuses. Stop this stuff about, well, I'm just human. I'm just human. Uh, you know, that's not a valid reason for you who claim to follow Christ to live like unbelievers. It, it, it's not. Billy Sunday, a fiery evangelist who used to live in the 20th who lived in the 20th century, used to say this. He said, an excuse is nothing more than the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. That's what an excuse is. An excuse is nothing more than the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. And it is time for Christians to stop making excuses and start living for the Christ that we claim to follow. And as we go on in this passage, we're going to discover that God has given us all the resources that we need to accomplish this. Now, this is kind of tough because the thing I hate about my own Christian life is realizing since God has given me all the reasons, later on He's going to say we're complete in Him in verse 10. Since we're complete in Him, since we have all the resources and all of the power and all the energy that we need to accomplish this. This is what I hate about my own Christian life. When I don't do it, it's not because I can't do it, it's because I won't do it. That's true for me and that's true for you. When we don't behave the way we're supposed to behave, it's not because we can't, it's because we won't. We choose to love the sin more than the Savior at that point. Plain and simple. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him, rooted and built up, strengthened in the faith that you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. And now the problem begins. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Now that phrase, see to it, in the King James is beware. And in the Greek, it means that you be on guard constantly. Don't let your guard down. Be watchful. The people that Paul is warning... Uh, are, here at the believer are, are, are at Colossae were all about he's warning them against these people there are people who were all about traditions 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 are not necessarily bad but when tradition become our central focus Christ gets out of focus notice that he warns that people he's talking about are intent on taking believers Captive. Now, how is it possible for people to take believers captive? Well, it's simple. These captives are ignorant of the truth of God's Word, and they're tied up and, and bound by their traditions. Instead, they become fascinated by philosophy and by the empty delusions of all of the false teachers that are available today. And by the way, this doesn't mean that all philosophy is bad because the word philosophy simply means to love reason. And so not all philosophies are bad. There's a Christian philosophy of life. A tradition, and not all traditions are bad. There's a Christian tradition as well. The important thing to remember is this, that, that any teaching that we're doing, we need to ask ourselves a question. Does it come from men or does it come from God? Does it come from men or does it come from God? The religious leaders in our Lord's day had their traditions and they were very zealous to protect those traditions and propagate them. And even Paul, before he met the Lord, said he was exceedingly zealous for the Jewish traditions. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. You see, our human traditions usually are become more important to us than our God-given doctrines of scriptures. And while it's not wrong to have church traditions that remind us of our godly heritage, 
We must be careful that we don't make these traditions equal to the truth of God's Word. Rabbinic Judaism, the Judaism that was prevalent in Jesus' day where you have your, your teachers, your rabbis, that everybody followed the rabbi uh, in different ways. Rabbinic Judaism, and by the way, Rabbinic Judaism became Pharisaical Judaism, which according to Jacob Neusner, I'm going to mention him in a minute again, but according to Jacob Neusner, is the only Jewish tradition that survived 70 A.D. And you'll understand why in a minute. But rabbinic Judaism, the Judaism that was in Jesus' day, began its development during the Babylonian captivity. The Jews were away from Jerusalem, and because they're away from Jerusalem, there are no temples to sacrifice in. Because there are no temples to sacrifice in, there's no absolution from sin. So trying to figure out how do we deal with this, the traditions began that basically said, now look, what we're going to do, there's no temple, you can't sacrifice at the temple, so we're going to make, and this is why the evening meal was so important in Jesus' day when he says, I'll, I'll have supper with you, I'll, I'll have fellowship with you, we'll have dinner together if you open your door of your heart. It's so important because what the Jews held at this point was that every supper table was the altar and every element of the food, the, the meat, was the sacrifice. So they didn't need the temple anymore. As a matter of fact, Jacob Neusner says in his book, An Invitation to the Talmud, says that by the development of these traditions, the Jews were able to extricate themselves from history so that they no longer uh, needed in it. They can continue to practice their faith whether there's a temple or whether there's not a temple. One of my favorite groups of people, this is a true group, a group of Pharisees. You know, there's seven different groups of Pharisees. But, you know, we don't realize that. We just call them Pharisees. But there were seven major different groups of Pharisees in Jesus' day. One of my favorite groups is a group of people called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. Now, the reason the Pharisees bruised and bleeding were, were, were called that is because they always had bruises on them and they were always kind of bloody and it was a mark of their holiness. And the way it worked was this. When they're in, in captivity, they're thinking, how did we get here? And they're thinking, well, we got here because we didn't keep the law. Because we didn't keep the law, God judges. He told us He was going to do that. He said, as long as we keep the law, we'll stay in the land. If we don't keep the law, we get kicked out of the land. Here we are in Babylon, kicked out of the land because we didn't keep the law. So they began to build fences around the Ten Commandments. Build fences around the, uh, the, the little traditions to keep people from overstepping those bounds. The bruised and breathing Pharisees, one of the things that it says in the Ten Commandments, the Seventh Commandment, if you remember it, was you will not commit adultery. So for the average Pharisee, what that meant, when you're walking down the street and a woman is coming towards you, you look the other way. Walk by her. But there was a second group of Pharisees that said, yeah, no, 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 that's not enough. Because you can look the other way, but you can still look out of the corner of your eye and you can see her. So you need to cross the street and turn your head and keep walking. And so they were constantly going back and forth across the street. And then there was this third group of Pharisees that said, no, 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 that's still not enough. You can still look across the street. So what you need to do is you need to turn your head, you need to cross your street, and you need to close your eyes and keep walking. I am not kidding you. Guess who these Pharisees were? The bruised and bleeding Pharisees. They were that way because they were always walking into things. And so what happened is these Jews in captive began to erect protective fences around the law to keep people from transgressing the law. So in Jesus' day, there are 714 volumes of traditions to keep people from breaking the law of God. But in the process, 
The traditions became more important than the law itself, and most devout Jews spent all of their time studying the traditions and not, never reading the Torah, the real source of these things, the book of the law. And the result is the traditions became so heavy and so burdensome on this people that by the time Jesus comes along and the, and the Jewish legalists, you know, just revered it and propagated it, and Jesus accused them, they crushed these people with an unbearable religious demand and never lift a finger to ease the burden. And then he goes on to say, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Now, sadly, 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 the Christian church has the propensity of substituting traditions for truth. And we need to be careful here. Most of us realize the danger of progressive and liberal Christianity, where people simply say, you know, well, we just don't believe that part of Scripture. We disregard that part of Scripture. It's not applicable to us today. And they reinterpret the portion of the Scripture that they disagree with, like Thomas Jefferson did when he cut out all of the miracles of the Bible and all the references to deity, and he made his Jefferson Bible. Same thing. There's one modern individual a man that many consider to be Christian, and he did a good deal when it comes to social justice in this nation. But he taught a liberation view of Christianity. And when it came to Christ, by his own words, he didn't believe in the virgin birth. That's just preposterous. He didn't believe in the death substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. He believed that Christ died, but he didn't believe it did us any good. He didn't believe in the resurrection. And he didn't believe in any of the stuff of work of atonement. He was focused on the exodus. And so he had this liberation theology. But he denied all the essential Christian doctrine. And most of us, most of the time, most of the time, catch stuff like this. Though lately I'm finding this to be less and less true in the church. Christians don't even know what they believe these days, let alone why they believe it. And we're prime candidates for the charlatans, the false teachers who come looking to take us captive. But on the other side of this coin, there's a large portion of what I believe today is not Christianity, but Pharisaism in Christian clothes. We have a cultural view of Christianity, not a biblical view of Christianity, and the traditions have replaced the truth in many cases, and that's easy to prove. Because most Christians today can tell you what they believe. And when they're telling you what they believe, they can tell you all of the things that they'll do and all of the things that they won't do. I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with girls who do type of things. But if we're honest, very few Christians today, very few, Christians today do the one thing that Jesus commanded us to do saying this will mark you as my follower that you love other people the same way I loved you aren't you glad that Jesus didn't say uh, let me just check this John for I don't think he deserves my love I've seen I've seen his behavior I, not only have I seen his behavior I know his thoughts And because I'm God and I know all things, I know when he's going to fail me even after he's accepted me. So, you know what? I know he doesn't give my love. 
And you Christians, again, I'm meddling. I, I know I'm meddling. You guys are going to be saying, man, I'm glad he retired. This garbage about, well, I don't love them, but I like them. I mean, I don't like them, but I love them. That's garbage. That's a lie. That's a lie. Stop saying it. It's our excuse. And we're only justifying by that statement our refusal to follow our Lord. Because we love those who are like us, but, you know, not so much those who aren't like us. If you only knew what they did to me, Pastor, you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't you know, be saying this. It's very easy to prove these days. <laughs> All you have to do is look at those Christians who claim to be Republican and look at those Christians who claim to be Democrat and watch the way they talk to each other. Such animosity. Not Christ-like. Okay, we need to move on. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ. That's where he says, you've been, in, in the King James, it says, you're complete in him. I love that phrase in the King James, you're complete in him. You've been given fullness in Christ. He is the head over every power and Authority. And Paul gives us the true and lasting antidote for all false teaching right here. Since we have all of the fullness in Christ and you have been made full in Him, why do we believe anything else? Why? The word fullness here is pleroma in the Greek, which means the sum total. The sum total of all that God is with all of his beings and all of his attributes. This word is used by the Gnostics, one of the groups that Paul's writing about here, by the Gnostics. And they don't give it the same meaning as Paul does. To them, the pleroma was the source of the, the emanations of God, the, the particles of them, basically. The emanations of God through which men could come to God. The highest point for the Gnostic uh, religious experience was to share in this pleroma, this secret knowledge, you know, piece by piece. Now, of course, we know that there are no emanations from God. He doesn't, he's not, we sang about it. He doesn't come in pieces. He doesn't love in pieces. The gulf between heaven and earth was bridged on the cross of Christ. It's bridged in Christ. Emmanuel, God, with us. He's the mediator between God and man. The only mediator between God and man. Jesus Christ is the fullness of God. That fullness dwells in Him permanently, bodily. Because after the resurrection, He took His body to heaven. Glorified body, yes, but it went to heaven. And it's real. God, man, Jesus embodies the fullness of God, and that fullness lives in everyone who claims Christ as their Savior. We're complete in Him. Every believer shares in this fullness. Again, 2.10, you are complete in Him. It's not you might be complete in Him. It's not you are becoming complete in Him. But you are complete in Him. The tense of the Greek verb indicates that this fullness is an immediate and permanent experience. It doesn't come and go. You know, in the Old Testament, we all love Psalm 51, don't we? Where David is confessing his sins with Bathsheba after suffering for a year. And one of the things he prays in there is he prays, you know, take not your spirit from me. You don't need to pray that as a Christian. Because he will never take his spirit 
from you. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon people and left people. In the New Testament, He indwells people. You are complete in Him. And you stand, by the tense of the Greek, you stand completed in Him. He doesn't look at me and say, look at that John Perel. He sees Christ. And the same true for you. When a person is born again and born into the family of God, they are born complete. They are born complete in Christ. Their spiritual growth is not by addition, it's by nutrition. We grow from the inside out. Nothing needs to be added to Christ because He is already the very fullness of God. And as a believer, we draw on Christ's fullness. He is filled in Ephesians 3.19 unto all the fullness of God. So you don't need anything more. You don't need a second work of grace. You know, there are spiritual perils that the Christian faces. The fundamental test of any religious teaching is where does it put Jesus Christ, his person, and his work? Does it rob Jesus of his fullness? Does it deny either his deity or his humanity? Does it affirm that the believer must have some type of new experience, some type of greater experience to supplement the experience that he had with Christ? And if it does, you need just to run from that because it's a dangerous teaching. It's trying to take you captive. And speaking of dangerous, it's time for me to get myself in deeper trouble with some of you, maybe not in the house, but those who are watching online. The false teachings that uh, made, threatened the Colossian church were made up of several elements. First of all, there was an oriental mysticism. You know, in America today, there's a, a tendency, even in the church, to kind of want to bring Hinduism, Eastern mysticism, into our teaching. And that was one of the problems in the Colossians that he's writing about here. It was an Eastern mysticism um, that was there. Second of all, there was astrology. Let's look at our, uh, let's look at our, you know, signs for today. Check that out. It was a false philosophy that set itself up higher than God, and it was Jewish legalism, traditions, traditions. Traditions. Apparently, the false teachers insisted that their converts submit to circumcision, in this particular case, to obey Old Testament law. So, here's what Paul writes. In him, you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by By Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, and we're talking about spiritual baptism here, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who was raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ and forgave some of your sins. No, and forgave us all our sins. Having, now listen to this, this is key. Having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a spectacle of them, a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now think about this for a minute. Triumphing over them on the cross? I mean, that's ultimate defeat, ultimate shame. But God transformed it in Christ. 
So let me sum up what he's saying here in these verses. Christianity is not Judaism 201. We are not an extension of the Jewish faith. Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath. It's not. And through the cross and resurrection, Jesus started a whole new religious system. He did not add to the Jewish law. He fulfilled it, and because He fulfilled it, He nullified it. See, we get in trouble because we've got a whole bunch of Christians trying to live by the Old Testament code. And that makes it difficult for those who are trying to find Christ, to those who are trying to find God. He fulfilled it. He nullified it. Look what Paul wrote. When you were dead in your sins and your uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all of our sins, having canceled. Having canceled. What did he cancel? The written code. The Greek word here is literally the handwriting of God. Having canceled that which was handwritten by God. Now, you remember your Sunday school, right? If you don't know Sunday school, you're watching online, you've never been to Sunday school, but you saw the Ten Commandments on TV. What's the one thing that we have in the Old Testament that was written by the finger of God? Ten Commandments. Written by the finger of God. To have that in Exodus, right? He says here very clearly, God has now canceled that. He's canceled it. If you're going to get mad, don't get mad at me. Get mad at Paul. He's the one that wrote it. The earlier followers of Christ understood this. You see it in Acts chapter 15 at the Council of Jerusalem. The church today does not understand it. Because we have the Old Testament, that was written by God. We have the New Testament, that was written by God. So we've got to have both. We've got to keep both. So before you start your arguments, before you appeal to your traditions on this, before you start listing basic principles of this world, A, B, C, therefore D, Before you start doing all of that, let me remind you that the overriding theme here is that we live like Jesus. We love like Jesus. We act like Jesus. That's verse 6, right? Said that was going to be the main thing. It always amazes me when I stop to consider that the people who were least like Jesus the sinners, the lowest of lows, you know, the tax collectors and stuff, all of that stuff. The people who were least like Jesus, like Jesus. And he liked them. And the people who should have been most like Jesus, the righteous people, the people who were trying to get it right, who had all of these traditions to protect the law, who were religious, who were studying... At least the Talmud, if not the Torah, the Talmud is that, that, those oral traditions, who claim to want to follow God's command are not only those who dislike Jesus, they tried to kill him. Well, they did kill him. And to be honest with this, not much has changed, has it? But our cherished traditions sometimes keep us from admitting that. We may see it, but Pastor, you know, we, we got, you know, if, if you say the Ten Commandments are gone, I mean, you you got a problem. Well, you know, I didn't say they were gone. Paul said they were canceled. Let's wrap this up. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or regard to a religious festival a new moon celebration, or the Sabbath day. 
Because there are those who argue, well, you know, the Sabbath was not in the Ten Commandments. It was well before that, so therefore we're still supposed to do that. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Now this is a direct reference to the Old Testament law. And so while the Old Testament is valuable for us, for information and example, you can check that out in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, verses 1 through 12. While it's great for an example to us, it is not binding on us. That issue was solved again at the first century by the Council of Jerusalem that's recorded in Acts 15. Check it out. Paul writes... You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. If it's Christ plus this, Christ plus law, Christ plus our tradition, you've been alienated from Him. You have fallen away from grace. You have stopped operating under grace. You're operating under tradition and under law. But you're not operating under grace. doesn't mean you've lost your salvation. It just means your operation as a believer is, is off base. And he writes on, so if Christ has truly set us free, now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in the slavery to the law. Stop speculating on this. Stop arguing about this and stop doing it. Because when you do, you are in sin. The Hebrew writer says, God speaks of these new promises of this new agreement as taking the place of the old one. For the old one is out of date now and has been set aside forever. That's that's Bible. So, let me just kind of warn you right now. The big thing that we're seeing in America is a thing called the Black Hebrew Movement. The Black Hebrew Movement and the Seventh-day Adventists, they're guilty of this. They're trying to go back to the old. And in doing so, they've alienated themselves from the Christ they claim to serve. It's an empty philosophy. And they won't be saved that way. The old is a shadow And you know this, a shadow can't do anything for you. It may startle you, and it may scare you, but it can't hurt you, it can't touch you, and it can't help you. You know, if you're about to be hit by a car, you don't want my shadow just trying to grab you. You want me to grab you. The shadow is useless. The shadow is what was old. The reality is the finished work of Christ. And that is where our trust needs to rest. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you from the prize. Such a person goes to great details about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body is supported and held together by its ligaments and sinew. It grows as God causes it to grow. You know, there are some people who can't seem to get enough of false prophets today. Prosperity theology, the New Age movement, those who want to substitute angels for Christ. And the reason we want to substitute angels for Christ in spirituality is because angels don't make any demands of us. So we can have our spirituality and we can have our way too, we think. And we're under the permissive judgment of God at that point. And let me just say something else. Your dead loved one is not an angel in heaven now. Stop saying that. And your grandmother is not your guardian angel. Just the thought. Anything that takes Christ off a center stage and adds to him a list of things that you need to do, falls under this category. 
So let me jump in with both feet here. If you find yourself not growing spiritually, it's because you have lost connection with the head. And if you have, not lo- if you have lost connection with the head, you're dead. Simple as that. Since you've died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with youths because they're based not on Scripture, but on human commands and teachings. When we use the Scripture, we just put a fence around what God really desires. Such regulations have the appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. In other words, they don't do any good for you with those sinful desires that comes from every one of our sinful hearts. The heart's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. Every Christian needs to have that somewhere where he sees it every day to remind himself because we think ourselves pretty good sometimes and we're not. We're all on the same boat here. Now, are you still with me? Okay, here's how you're going to guard against man-made religions that are so prevalent today in the modern church. Practical questions that you can use about any religious group, any religious teaching, any religious teacher. These are the questions that you should be asking. First, does it stress keeping the Old Testament laws? Anything that stresses the Old Testament and keeping those laws, you you need to realize they're talking about shadows. They've lost the reality. Second, does it stress taboos? You know, taboos are, you know, you don't do this, you don't do this, you don't do this, you don't do this. I heard one guy say one time, he said, I'm tired of Christians talking about what they don't do. Tell me what you do do, what you do like. I'm tired of people talking about what they don't like. Tell me what you like. That's a taboo. Does it stress taboos and man-made rules rather than God's grace? Third, does it... Form a critical spirit towards others? Or does it exercise discipline discreetly, lovingly, with the aim to, destroy, uh, to, to restore a person rather than destroy a person? You know, that's one of the things I always had trouble with in church discipline. One of the things I had trouble with in church discipline is we are real good at calling out sin. We are real bad at forgiving the sinner. I mean, we are. Come on. You know, you've had the person, you know you know what they're like. You know, they blow it and they claim to be a Christian and, you know, they come back to you and, you know, you're saying, okay, I'll accept you once you prove that you're different. Just prove it. You know, Jesus was the worst example here. You ever think about this? Peter denies Jesus using God as his witness I, on God's name, I, I never knew met this guy. And Jesus turns right around and makes him head over the whole thing without any chance first of, okay, Peter, now you've got to prove yourself first. You know, with Paul, you know, we forget this with Paul. Paul's converted, right? Do you realize before his, from his conversion that before his ministry began it was ten years? Jesus doesn't do that with Peter. You blew it yesterday. Tomorrow you're in charge of everything. Oh, yeah, yeah. He he, he sinned. He could never be a pastor again. I don't see that in Scripture. Sorry. Four. Does it elevate self-righteous practices? Elevating those who keep the rules rather than elevating Christ? Five. Does it claim to be an elite group? You know, only they have it right. You don't go to their church, you're not going to go to heaven. And there are a lot of churches like that. 
or does it recognize Christ's universal church? There, there are differences. Six, does it teach outward practices, how you dress, where you go, what you eat, what you drink, who you hang out with, all of those things. These are how we tell whether you're growing spiritually. Does it emphasize those things or does it focus on the whole person? You see, outward, focus, outward stuff only focuses on the visible. But the whole person, physical, mental, social, spiritual, focuses on all of mankind. And seven, does it disregard the family? And by this, what I mean, I've known people who are so wrapped up in church and they're so busy in church, their family is going to hell. I'm sorry, I'm just being blunt. They're more than just, oh, yeah, but you know, we're doing the right thing. I can't help it that they're not involved. If it disregards the family, doesn't hold it in high regard, it's not right. You know, I'm very proud of my son, Colin, our son, Colin, Myra, and I. We're very proud of him. But I made a a decision early in my ministry, because I know, you know, you hear the thing about, you know, preacher's kids, they're terrible. You know why preacher's kids are terrible? Preacher's kids are terrible because a lot of times preachers have forgotten that their first priority is their family. And when you forget your first priority is your family... You've disregarded the family rather than holding it in high regard. People can replace me in the pulpit. They can't replace me as daddy. Period. Period. For good or for evil. Very important. Now, we, I've put final slide, one, one more slide, so that uh, we put all of these things on one slide if you want to write that down or take a screenshot of it. If you're watching online, just take a screenshot, and that gives you all of those questions right up front. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the freedom, the freedom, the freedom, the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. Lord, help us not to squander that freedom and be dragged back in to yokes of slavery, whether it's Old Testament law or whether it's new traditions that we've developed. And help us to realize that when all is said and done, you have left us with one mark and one mark only. And that is to love as we were loved by you. And Lord, if we could get that right, we could change our families. We could change our communities. We could change our nation. We could change our world. But as long as we insist on doing it our way, we're going to face the consequence of permissive judgment. So guide us, guard us, protect us, lead us, and help us to follow you faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen.